Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Form Book Club. Uh, this week we begin discussing Saints and Sinners in the Cristero War by Monsignor James T. Murphy. But before we begin, I have a reparation, an act of reparation to make. I butchered a poem by G.K. Chesterton last week, and uh, I want to butcher it in a different way this week by trying to read it. Uh, it's called uh, The Mirror of Mad Men. This has to do with pride and, you know, uh, self-centeredness. So it's a short poem. And by the way, I think Chesson is underrated as a poet. Now, I'm not a judge of poets, except I'm a judge of things that I like in poetry. And uh, it's, it's not just, it's kind of between limericks and, uh, you know, highly ornate or professional poetry. Anyway, this is called The Mirror of Mad Men. He says, uh, I dreamed a dream of heaven, white as frost, the splendid stillness of a living host. Vast choirs of upturned faces, line or line. Then my blood froze, for every face was mine. Spirits with sunset plumage throng and pass, glass darkly in the sea of gold and glass. But still on every side, in every spot, I saw a million selves who saw me not. I fled to quiet wastes where on a stone, perchance I found a saint who sat alone. I came behind, returned with slow, sweet grace, and faced me with my happy, hateful face. I cowered like one that in a tower doth bide, shut in by mirrors upon every side. Then I saw Islanden in skies alone, and silent one that sat upon a throne. His robe was bordered with rich rose and gold, green, purple, silver, out of sunsets old. But o'er his face a great cloud edged with fire, because it covereth the world's desire. But as I gazed, a silent worshiper, methought the cloud began to faintly stir. And I fell flat and screamed with groveling head, If thou hast any lightning, strike me dead. But spare a brow where the clean sunlight fell, the crown of a new sin that sickens hell. Let me not look aloft and see mine own feature and form upon the judgment throne. So he's seeing himself everywhere. Last stanza. Then my dream snapped, and with a heart that leapt, I saw across the tavern where I slept the sight of all my life most full of grace, a gin-damned drunkard's wan, half-witted face. Anyway, that, I forget the point we are making last week, but that makes it. <laughs> it's good to see the other as other, not a reflection of ourselves. 
So on to saints and sinners in the uh, Cristero War, uh, these first chapters, especially the first two, are more than mainly historical background, but I think it's very valuable background for us, especially because they're our neighbor. And secondly, they're becoming uh, our population more and more. Mm -hmm. uh, and thirdly, it's a chapter that none of us were taught in school. I didn't know anything about the Cristero War until I was visiting Mexico with Father Fessio, and we started to visit places that had been blown up by the government forces trying to suppress the church. And I hadn't known anything about it. And, of course, the question occurs when you learn about it, I thought Mexico was a Catholic country. Right. The population majority Catholic. How can the government be persecuting Catholics? Well, this little historical background goes a long way to explaining that. It's the mid-19th century. Mexico, which was invaded, you know, by the conquistadores in the 1500s, we're now three centuries beyond that, and they finally get their independence from Spain. I think around 1522 the war began, or war ended, something like that. But this now is after the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment had its effects in Mexico like everywhere else. I want to refer to page 18, which is about this uh, Mexican uh, scholar-journalist, Melchor Ocampo, who was a liberal in the Enlightenment sense, and was in this newspaper debate, with an anonymous priest who we believe was the bishop of the area. And in this debate that took place in the pages of a newspaper, the anonymous priest referred to these, quote, pestilential doctrines, close quote, the twin ideas of freedom of religion and freedom of conscience. Now, those are not in quotes, but I think that requires some comment. Mid-19th century was also the time of Pope Pius IX with his famous syllabus of errors. And it's true in that syllabus that there is criticism of religious freedom and freedom of conscience. But it is contextualized somewhat. When what was seen in Europe, especially in France and spreading from France, was Freedom of religion, freedom of conscience meant you could persecute the Catholic Church and put to death uh, Catholics and Christians. So I think the Second Vatican Council properly integrated that idea that we don't really have rights to error, but we have, I mean, error has no rights, but we have the right to be in error. But this apparently was a critical point in Mexico's history, this idea that we have to reject the church's teachings because the church is opposed to freedom of religion and freedom of conscience. That's my comment on this. Does anybody want to comment on my comment or do we go ahead or what? Uh, no, at the top of that page, page 18, and again, I don't, obviously I don't know the extent to which this is gossip or whether it actually happened, but we have this example of this priest who refused to bury 
the dead son of a poor worker because he the poor worker couldn't afford to pay for the funeral uh, and was rather contemptuous of the spiritual needs of, of the family and the deed of the deceased. And I, I think that one lesson we need to learn from that, of course, is that one of the best friends of the enemies of the church are priests who cause scandal. Uh, and we see as an example here, I don't know to what extent it's gossip, I don't know to what extent this really happened, but the point is that the priests behaving in this way feed the fires of discontentment against the church, and, that, um, and, and that's, a, that's a recurring feature of this war, if you like, between the mystical body of Christ and the secular world. Yes, and it comes up again in a different form when we learn how, um, I'm afraid I don't have my marked up copy, but... You know, when the, when the uh, bishops of the church in Mexico actually support the invasion of Mexico by the French in order to put on the throne a Habsburg, uh, you know, brother of the Austro-Hungarian emperor, make him emperor of Mexico and all this kind of thing. You know, that's just the church setting itself up for a political backlash. And so to your point, Joseph, you know, churchmen acting badly, unfortunately, <laughs> gives the enemies of the church excuses to then persecute the church. However, we can always appeal to the higher standard by which we all are judged. Well, it wasn't right when the church did it, and it's not right when you do it either. So we either agree that there's a standard by which we're all judged, or we end up with double standards, Right. Yes, as a priest, I've heard this. Oh, Father, I, I don't go to church anymore because uh, some priest in confession said this or that. Oh, really? I didn't become a Christian because Judas stole my purse. You know, no, wait a minute. You know, you can always point to a, yes. a priest or bishop or even a pope doing something which is reprehensible. Yes, but that's not that's not the Catholic Church. In total. Uh, I, I said something very similar this week. I can't remember who I was talking to, but someone who was scandalized by the church. And I said that you don't leave Jesus because of Judas. Simple as that. Yes, that's a very succinct way to put it. So uh, page 22, I had a comment there. Uh, oh, about the Jesuits. This is by 1540. I remember the Jesuits by the middle of the 17th century, so at the 1600s, so it's one century after their foundation, really. This is the middle of the page, 22. By the middle of the 17th century, they were running 32 colleges, universities all over New Spain, New Spain being Mexico. Well, New Spain probably at that time also included part of the continental U.S. here, but I don't think the Jesuits had any colleges here. But when they say college, by college, more like what we call a high school, but nevertheless, 32 rather major institutions. I'm, I'm proud of my past. Mm -hmm. the, and then later on, the first university in North America was not Harvard, established in 1636, but the Royal and Pontifical University of Mexico established in 1551, like 80 years ahead of that. We forget some of those things. Right. Right. I, I really appreciated uh, the author giving us this history of Mexico going back, as you say, to the conquest and then and then uh, what all European Catholicism did 
for Mexico. The Cristero War happened in the 20th century because I think that's important to note because we're going back here quite a bit. Um, but to show this relationship between the secular and the sacred, and uh, sometimes they are helping each other, sometimes they are too close to each other, sometimes they're the enemies of each other. And I think also the danger that we have as Catholics of, of being find ourselves uh, in a knee-jerk reaction joining uh, one side against the other um, on the basis that you know the, the, uh, the our enemies enemies our friends so you know on page 25 we have this you know the polarization of, of, of Mexico into liberals and conservatives now of course the liberals are those who support the enlightenment the ideas of the French Revolution they're secularists generally speaking they're enemies of the church generally speaking but then the so-called conservatives we have here that with the approval of the Vatican this is over halfway down page 25. The power sharing gave the Spanish crown the right to nominate bishops and other ecclesiastical offices, control church taxation, and give approval for the building of new churches and the establishment of diocesan boundaries. The crown could also control the number of priests coming from Europe to the New World and could even veto the publication and execution of papal edicts in the colonies. Mm -hmm. so you have the same. No, obviously, I, I've just written a book about uh, the history of the, the church in England. And this is exactly what the Catholics in England were fighting against from the time of Henry VIII. And it, but here we have, if you like, uh, this complicity on the part of, of, of the church in allowing this secular control of the church's affairs. And, of course, then that's going to, again, compromise the extent to which the ordinary people see the church mm -hmm. as impartial and spiritual as opposed to being a political party. That's right. That's exactly right. You know, um, just a little side note, you'll often see in uh, mission churches in the Southwest and in California that the bell towers, one of the cupolas is missing. You ever notice that? No. How sometimes one of the cupolas on the bell towers is missing? And it's because as soon as the church was finished, that's when it could be taxed by the crown. And so they deliberately left off part of the bell tower so that the building was not finished yet. So it was a way to evade uh, taxation. But uh, I just the judges were there. <laughs> in, in, in England today, actually, you see old houses with windows that have been bricked up. And that's because of a, a tax about 200 years ago on windows. So people just bricked up the window to pay less tax and you still see the windows blocked up to these days yeah so no you're absolutely right joseph that that this uh this relationship can be way too close and then it corrupts the church and it scandalizes the uh the, the faithful and it just leads to trouble and it certainly led to trouble in mexico yes and i want to talk about how that was institutionalized uh Page 28, the new paragraph at the bottom there. This, to this day, the people are divided on just how anti-clerical the 1857 Constitution was. So that was the main constitution after their independence, mm -hmm. 1857. And on page 29, about oh, 10 lines up, the author says their aim was not to destroy the Catholic Church, that's easy liberals like Ocampo, but rather to disentangle church and state. Mm -hmm. And that, that sounds reasonable enough, especially following upon the United States Constitution. 
But then on page 31, uh, after this war of reform, 1858-1861, and that was after the Constitution, we read that uh, description down below at the bottom of the page. Eminent liberals literally picked up axes to destroy altars, church facades, pulpits, and confessionals. Scenes out of the French Revolution were reenacted. Images of the saints were decapitated, shot full of holes, burned in public, autos da fe. Treasures were robbed, archives were plundered, recent libraries went up in flames. So that doesn't sound exactly like a group of people that's only interested in separating church and state. That's right. Uh, no, that's right. There, there's no question that, that the hostility and the hatred, uh, and we're going to see more and more of that as, as the story goes on, is, is whatever justification there might have been for a need for a correction, I mean, what the hostility and hatred that gets unleashed, you know, becomes demonic, you know? And, and we see that in England, Joseph, in the, the Tudor tyranny, and we see it in, in the French Revolution, you know, this, this blood fest that starts to happen. It's, so you unleash these uh, forces and just terrible, terrible crimes get committed. And they were committed, but at least in the 19th century, there apparently was some debate whether the Constitution itself was anti-clerical or whether there's just some people taking advantage of it to try and attack the church. But on page 38 and 39, we learned that there was a, a president who was there for many, many years, kind of a peaceful rule, and he actually called for opposition parties. But then on page 39, we realized that a new Constitution was written in 1917 yes. to rewrite the 1857 Constitution and to institutionalize the revolution. And below that, it was this infamous document, the Constitution of 1917, that triggered the massive economic boycott organized by a saintly attorney who we'll see in Chapter 3. So apparently that, that Constitution was explicitly anti-clerical. And 1917 is an important year because that's yeah. also the year of the Russian Revolution the Bolshevik Revolution. And so uh, now, in addition to enlightenment ideas getting into the political conversation, we now have overt communism as well becoming a political force in Mexico and other places. Yeah, and what I liked about that is he ends that chapter by basically alluding, which he then discusses in the next chapter, to Leo XIII's encyclical Verum Novarum, yes. which, you know, which did lay the foundation for the Church's social teaching, this response to both socialism and the hedonistic capitalism, and looking at this via media, this, uh, this bona fide path, if you like, for social justice. And, th and I think that helped a lot in, in getting people back on board with the church. You know, the uh, whole idea of the, uh, of the, uh, the revolutionaries, that the church was just uh, the right arm of, of reaction. Mm -hmm. and when you get something like the Reverend of Arm coming out, it, it shows that's emphatically not the case. That's right. This 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 is very inspiring, isn't it? How much the uh, social teaching of the church developed in this period inspired so many young people, inspired the, the, the organization of social action, labor unions and all these things. It's 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 a glorious moment for the church, really, that uh, that the social teaching can inspire so much heroic activity in society for bringing about real constructive changes. But unfortunately, 
<laughs> or maybe not, unfortunately. I mean, it depends on how you look at it. The, 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 the slapdown that came from the government, you know, now the church is getting real moral and spiritual power. And in a way that almost threatens her enemies even more. That's the irony is that the socialists then see the church as a, as a real enemy that has an alternative. Yes. Right. You, you, you set up the devil as the enemy and everybody obviously going to be against the devil. And then you have somebody other than the devil giving an alternative way of doing things. You don't have to give all the power to the, to the communist party and have to give all the power to the state in order to get justice. On the contrary, give the power back to the people authentically yes. right, through private property, through uh, producers' cooperatives, through small farms, you know, to, re to revitalize the power of the peasants. Right? This is all of a sudden, this is an authentic alternative to the socialist option. And that's why the socialists then obviously realize that this is the enemy. Yep. And, and related to that, and we'll see in the next chapter on Leo XIII and the Catholic Revival, this moral power of the church coincides with the loss of the civil power because the papal states uh, were, you know, turned over to Italy. That's right. In the late 18th and uh, 19th century. But it's amazing how at the very moment that's happening, Leo XIII is beginning the expression of the church's moral authority. So chapter two is Leo XIII, the Catholic Revival. You mentioned Reverend of Arm, that's in this chapter. Uh, there was actually a national Catholic party mm -hmm. that was established in uh, Mexico. I'm not sure what I think about Catholic parties, especially in the United States. We're not used to things like that, but mm -hmm. you, you, ha you had them in Europe, or at least Christian Democrats, things like right, that. Right, right. I think it was a, it was a, a, an organic response to the rise of uh, of atheistic socialism. Mm -hmm. It was the Christian response, and there, there was enough ground 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 uh, grassroots Christianity to actually make that forge part of the history of politics in Europe. I was also happy to see on page forty seven at the bottom that uh, inspired by Reverend Navarro by Leo Thirteenth, a Jesuit priest formed a youth association, mm -hmm. which became extremely influential in, in Mexico. Right. And then this, this chapter, this next chapter, uh, chapter three, where we see this lived out in the life of one particular heroic individual, this... Um, Anacleto Gonzalez Flores. Yes. Yes. I mean, um, what an inspiring figure. Uh, what a heroic man. And... and uh, so it's interesting, he sets it up with Chapter 2, the sort of theoretical basis for uh, Rerum Novarum and Pope Leo XIII and, and the church, like you said, losing the papal states, now having moral authority. And here's a man who takes all that in and is formed by it, and look what that produces. And this is where the book becomes fascinating and inspiring, because here's a, a, a real human being yeah. uh, living his Catholic life, uh, devout, serious and loving his country and trying to do something to, to help integrate into his company's cultural life. These, what you're saying, Joseph, about working with the poor and the laborers and the proletariat, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I do have one little concern, page 61, because when this uh, struggle began, and the government began to shut down certain Catholic things. At the uh, bottom of that 
section on page 61, uh, the bishop, Francis Orozco, authorized the suspension of all public masses in the archdiocese as part of a protest. Well, I, I'm sorry, but I mean, who's harmed by that protest? Well, you know, we just went through a period where the church has been shut down. That's right. Uh, in Mexico, they were shut down by the bishops themselves. I, I, I don't know if they were. Th that's what forced the church underground. I mean, if you wanted the sacraments, now you had to go underground to get them. And I you know I, I don't exactly. It doesn't really explain why what the thinking was behind this. Like, how did he think? To your question, right. how did he think this was going to help? And other bishops then followed that example as well. Uh, and many of these bishops ended up in exile, and and the priests were underground. So I don't know. I don't have any. Right, yeah, just, I mean, how can you threaten an atheistic, socialistic government by going on strike and suspending the sacraments? I mean, are they going to? Is that going to threaten them, or, or, or what? I mean, it's not clearly. I don't, well, it's, it just strikes me as wrong-headed. Period. Yeah, it does. It's sort of uh, reminiscent of the interdicts of the Middle Ages. You know that the way the the papacy would punish recalcitrant princes or kings or whatever would be to put his entire kingdom under an interdict. No one could get communion until your sovereign gets it right with the church. Well, who did that hurt? It hurt all the lay people, common people, who now couldn't receive the sacraments until their leader, uh, you know, was brought to heal. And did, I don't know what the popes back then were thinking. Were they thinking that the people then would maybe so be so discontent that they'd revolt against their sovereigns? And I mean, I don't know, but... It's kind of yeah. like that. It's reminiscent of that. Yeah, I think I, 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 I'm right. in favor of excommunication, but not interdict. Precisely. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, excommunication is punishing an individual for for recalcitrance, but you're pu punishing everybody <laughs> for for the recalcitrance of a few is is never just. Well, I, I wouldn't even say excommunication is a punishment. Really, I would say it's truth in advertising, and we're simply saying to someone, for example, who's a politician who promotes abortion, I'm sorry, you're not in community with the Catholic Church. I'm not punishing you. You're, you're free to be, do whatever you want. But if you call yourself a Catholic, you can't do this. Anyway. Yeah, and I, I, the one thing I would say as well, I mean, I, I, I've got a few quibbles, uh, um, but the, the, when the section on the Enlightenment on page 63, uh, I, I think, you know, that he, this is woody-minded, um, you know, he talks about the Enlightenment, enlightenment Taking things we take for granted, take for granted today, that the observable world can be figured out by pure reason. Well, I mean, why is that something that the Enlightenment takes credit for? Uh, you know, Plato and Aristotle and Aquinas and Augustine already believed that. So, you know, and the idea of individual liberty, tolerance, and social progress. I mean, just using those glib labels without explanation, what do we mean by individual liberty? The right to do exactly what you want, whenever you want? What do we mean by tolerance? Tolerating anybody and everything? Um, and what do we mean by social progress? Progress towards what? Um, you know, it's not that we're just, just using these labels that sound nice, but actually without contextualizing, really um, give too much ground to the secularism and the Enlightenment, because it's just giving them credit for for vague, vague, nice-sounding labels without actually giving the 
the the, 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 the depth and the roots that are necessary. Because when we start doing that, we see actually as the Catholic Church uh, enshrines individual liberty before the Enlightenment comes along. Um, uh, tolerance, we obviously don't tolerate things that are going to um, going to harm other people. You, you don't tolerate certain actions. So tolerance is not good in itself. You know, and what is progress? You know, ultimately, progress is, is getting closer to heaven. Progress is, get, is getting holier. Um, and that any society that's moving away from that, doesn't matter how many technological gadgets it's got, it's not progressing. Yes, and I, I want to apologize uh, both for what you just referred to, Joseph, and another thing I'm going to refer to myself. I, you know, I, I read our manuscripts before we publish them, and I, I can't believe I read some of these things and didn't correct them, but on page 68, the bottom, he talks, he says, you know, today there's a growing conviction that the just war theory is out of date. No, that's yeah. heresy. Yeah. The just exactly. war theory is part of the church's moral teaching. Now, I, 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 it, it may be that, that you can say under just war theory, war is no longer justifiable. I don't agree with that, but you could say that. And then on page 69, the new paragraph, Another argument against the just war theory. I don't want to publish a book that has arguments against the just war theory. That's the teaching of the church. Anyway, we're going to fix yeah, this yeah, in the second, uh, in the uh, second was, printing. Go was, ahead. Was, was Poland wrong to resist the Nazi invasion of its borders? Was was Great Britain wrong to, to fulfill its promise to come to the assistance of Poland once the Nazis invaded Poland? I mean, that, you know, because once you start saying there's no such thing as, as a just war, what you're really saying is those with power, such as Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin, can do what they like because none of us have the right to resist. Well, to put the best spin on it possible, okay. he could be saying not that the categories of just war no longer exist, but that keeping up with modern warfare like you just said, you know, um, is, is, you know, the theory has to keep up to date with modern warfare in terms of reapplying the theory. It's like any moral principle, you know, you have to apply it to the current situation. Right, but the theory is not the Correct. The application of it. But what he says is the theory is I know, but it, I, I know that's what he says. I spin it, but I mean, he should, if, if, he, if it, he meant what you said, he should have said what you said. I, I'm, I won't disagree with you. Highlight okay. that for a double negative. <laughs> Well, a minor quibble on page 66, new paragraph at the top. Anacleto, our hero here, admired Mahatma Gandhi, who had, le who had led India to independence from Britain. Well, that was in 1947. So I've, I've, I've put three question marks after that. And I also put no with four exclamation marks beside the just just uh, war theory extract you mentioned. Is. Okay. Well, yeah, you're, 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 you're pointing out the things I also wanted to point out. However, I mean, I, I still think he gives a useful summary of the political religious situation in oh, Mexico yeah. starting in the mid or uh, early in mid 19th century, which I think is important background to understanding who these saints were and why they 
offered their life. Yeah, I, just, I think I think he just goes off the rails a little bit from the from the subsection headed the Enlightenment on page sixty three. I think up to that, it's it's all fine, and maybe you know he should have tightened his lang- use of language in that part of the chapter. That would be would be what I would say. So. Good. Well, we're off to a good start. Yes. yes. I mean, we didn't mention much about this life of this maestro, but it was certainly an inspiring life. I mean, uh, from poverty to, uh, you know, doing all he did. So for next week, we will prepare by reading chapters four through six inclusive, four, five, and six. And then... Thank you all. God bless you all. And welcome next week to the Forum Book Club. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.